I have three keys for long-haul ministry. Let me explain. Uh, in my church in Dubai, there are a number of Emirates Airlines pilots, and uh, I live vicariously through these guys. Uh, they've got the coolest job. I used to want to be a pilot. Uh, I went to the United States Air Force Academy. Um, I was a pilot myself growing up. Uh, I follow aviation accounts on Twitter. <laughs> I waste lots of time on Instagram reels looking at aviation accounts. I've already seen the YouTube footage of the, the American drone that was buzzed by the Russian fighter jet. My dad used to be an airline pilot. And he flew in the United States years ago what they called short hops. Uh, you know, from Boston down to Washington or from uh, Atlanta down to Miami. These guys in our church, though, they fly 12-hour, 16-hour flights in some of the biggest, most sophisticated aircraft in the world. And they tell me that long-haul flying is a different kind of animal. For one thing, there's the monotony of long-haul flying as hour passes hour up there in the cockpit, um, only the occasional balloon sighting to get anyone's attention. And then there's the problem of tiredness and sleep. Um, it's such a problem that there are strict rules on how you fall asleep. There's what's called controlled rest in the cockpit, or there's bunk rest in the back. And last year, uh, an Ethiopian Airlines flight overshot its approach into Addis Ababa. It overflew the airport at 29,000 feet. Why? Because both pilots fell asleep, even though they were responsible for hundreds of people and their safety in the back. How much more so for us? In our ministries, we're responsible for the eternal souls of the people who come under our care. I mean, whether we're missionaries caring for an embattled MBB, or whether we're seeking to start a new church or pastor an international congregation, there's the challenge of regular, daily vigilance. And... There's the importance of taking the long view in ministry. So I'm going on 18 years at the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. And I found in this part of the world, there's a particular value in the long haul ministry. First, it takes a while for people to learn to trust you. New guy showing up, some level of suspicion. And I think especially in cross-cultural environments. It takes years to earn people's confidence. And then there's the transients of international ministry. Most of our churches represented here are revolving doors. Uh, we will lose maybe 20% of our people every year. In that kind of an environment, a settled, deliberate, long-term ministry I think is all the more valuable for giving stability, a ballast to the ship, as it were. So I'm advocating this afternoon, plotting, patient, 10 to 20 year time horizon kind of ministry. And this is a minority report, let it be known. In the modern missions context, there's the need for speed. There's a growing impatience with ministry strategies 
unless they're immediate, visible results. So a deliberate, a settled ministry dedicated to the ordinary means of grace is criticized as a slow-to-grow approach in many circles. Unless you target what's called a people movement approach, then you're doomed to one-by-one ministry. Donald McGavern has asked, whom do they get? They get a man here, a woman there, a boy here, a girl there. That is a sure way to guarantee that any church who started will be small, non-growing, one-by-one churches. His alternative is what they call people movements. All of the same segment of society, so whole tribe or whole caste movements to Christ. He says, established churches made up largely of taxi drivers. The congregation has a natural, built-in social cohesion. Everybody feels at home. And encourage group decisions for Christ. The alternative is the slow way. So this movement-driven approach is championed by uh, the Perspectives Handbook here uh, on the World Christian Movement. It's a reader edited by Ralph Winter and Stephen Hawthorne. Uh, Do you know this book? I think a lot of you know it, but I wonder if all of you have read it or read the relevant portions to what we're considering in these days. Uh, It's a book and a course that came out of America and has influenced a generation of missionaries, pastors, church planters, missions committee members. It includes some good articles and lots of bad ones, including one by the missionary pastor in Honduras, George Patterson, who became impatient with one-by-one baptisms. He said, at first I acted as though a big buzzard were perched on my shoulder, just waiting to pounce on our converts that fell away. I delayed baptism to make sure they were safe. I soon saw, though, that the very reason many fell away was my distrust. And the idea was he was distrusting that whole groups of people hastily baptized were actually born again. But he concluded it was worth the risk. And I quote, that's the funny thing about God's grace. He wants to... He wants us to let it slop over on the unworthy. In other words, he's saying baptize entire groups, entire families that show interest in merely obeying Jesus and run the risk that some of them are not genuinely converted. All this and more is found, especially in the church planting section of the Perspectives Manual. So be advised. Now, this is all counter to the great historic missionaries and pastors of yesteryear who we celebrate here in this conference, John Calvin, during the Protestant Reformation, expressed the need for patience and endurance. In a letter that he wrote to some pastors he had trained in Geneva who were headed down the path to martyrdom, he said, though the fruit may not all appear at once, yet in time it shall spring up more abundantly than we can express. David Livingston penetrated the interior of Africa with the gospel in the mid-1800s. 
He once noted this in his journal after addressing a group he noticed. A quiet audience today. The seed being sown. The least of all seeds now. But it will grow into a mighty tree. None of this means we should just sit on our hands. Uh, we long as much as the next guy for revival, numerical growth, and we have reason to be expectant because of the power of the gospel that we were just considering this morning. We have reason for confidence. As Ian Murray said in The Puritan Hope, evangelicals had always believed that divine blessing was related to prayer and the preaching of the gospel. It is not to be passively awaited. But here, friends, is the difference between us and what's called movement-driven missions. Our hope is not in our techniques. It's not in a silver bullet discovery method. Our hope is in the sovereign Lord who rules over history and who has moved extraordinarily time and again throughout history, but who usually moves only gradually and tied to ordinary means. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So it's interesting here that the harvest does not come immediately, First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. In fact, the sower doesn't even know how the seed sprouts. He goes to sleep. He's like those Ethiopian Airlines pilots slumbering away at 29,000 feet. All by itself, the soil produces grain. Paul said, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it but God made it grow. Three keys to long-haul ministry. Key number one, preaching. That is expositionally. Where the point of the sermon is the point of the text. So we're like the postman. Our job is not to write the letter, it's simply to deliver the letter as it is. So we're not concerned to be original, but reliable. Sometimes people say, well, this method of preaching, it might connect with your people, but it won't connect with mine. I mean, we're in an international environment. These people need milk. I mean, maybe this works with a congregation of intellectuals, or maybe in a Western context. But, friends, I can testify that ordinary pastors 
in international churches can do this and are doing this all over the United Arab Emirates and beyond. I mean, in our church in Dubai, we have people from Argentina and Eritrea, Saudi and Mali. And we preach expositionally. We're from all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of backgrounds, wealthy British CEOs down to the struggling Ethiopian housemaid. What is it that holds us together? It is a commitment to hear God speak. And in this way, it's not the preacher who sets the agenda. It's God. So preach consecutively through books. Trust that the Bible knows what's relevant to your congregation even better than you do. I'll never forget years ago, I was preaching through First uh, Peter, just begun a new series. I was only about a year into my ministry. I was preaching on the elect exiles of God, and I was dealing with the issue of election because I couldn't just skip over that word. I needed to address it, and therefore I preached a sermon addressing election, and an elder came up to me afterwards. I'll never forget. He was a seasoned missionary who had spent a career on the field in Indonesia, very respected in our congregation, on his final assignment in Dubai. And he said, look, John, these are simple people. They don't need to get into the controversies and the, the theological disputes. Preach something practical like marriage or do a series on tithing. He just didn't realize how vital God's sovereign choice was to practical relationships like marriage. Nor did he realize how these ordinary folks would respond with exaltation to the glories of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. Friends, we can trust God to set the agenda in our churches. And over time, the method itself will affect your, your people in ways that you can't even imagine. I mean, just the, the method of exposition. For one thing, it shows an unswerve, unswerving commitment to hear God speak. Again, God is setting the agenda. Plus, especially as a new pastor coming in, it builds your credibility. They will trust you more if they see that your ministry is visibly subservient to the word itself. And not only that, but it will teach the people how to study the Bible for themselves as you expound verse by verse. David Jackman said, the expository preacher wants always to be giving the Bible back into the hands of the congregation. The Bible is not the preserve of the expert. But the word of God is for everybody, everywhere. But exposition is not easy to do. Week in and week out, it takes time and hard work, as many of you know. And if you're a pastor, of course, this should dictate how you spend your time. John MacArthur puts it this way in uh, Ian Murray's biography of him. I use a system I call planned neglect. I plan to neglect everything until my study is done. This isn't an, an excuse for being a slouch in the other areas of our ministries. It simply means our priority is proclamation. I'm not talking about your style. 
I'm sure that exposition will look different in a majlis with eight people than in the auditorium with 200. The point is that preaching expose the meaning of the Bible passage and then press it home onto the heart of the hearer. So we feed our people through preaching in any cultural context. You've probably heard critics object to expository teaching. It's just a Western style of preaching. It won't work in the Middle East. It doesn't work in Central Asia. It doesn't work in storytelling environments, I've heard. But what was happening in Israel 500 years before Christ? You know that famous Bible conference with Nehemiah. He actually had built this wooden platform on which he stood in order to showcase the authority as he expounded the law. He had six on one side, seven on the other. They were like the breakout speakers of the Bible conference. And what does it say? After the word was preached, these people, they went out among the congregation and they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's exposition. It may have involved translating from Hebrew to Aramaic, if that was the prevailing language of the time. It certainly involved giving the sense. That's what expositors do. They read, they explain, they apply, and they exhort. And what was Paul doing when he uh, visited the synagogues throughout the Mediterranean? He reasoned from the scriptures, persuading, explaining, proving. And then what about the early centuries of the church? John Chrysostom in Constantinople. He told his church in the third century, I often tell you many days in advance the subject of what I'm going to say in order that you may take up the book in the intervening days, go over the whole passage, learn both what is said and what is left out, and so make your understanding more ready to learn when you hear what I will say afterwards. Say afterwards. Like an ancient version of the sermon card. Exposition is not a style. It's a biblical method, which may look different in different contexts, but it applies in Kurdistan, Kashmir, Korea, because it's the word of God. But it doesn't change things overnight. That's what you should understand. The biblical method works over time. I suppose it's possible to take too much of a long-term view. You know, the 17th century Puritan, William Googe, he spent an entire decade preaching Job, week after week in the patience of Job. It was said the entire congregation needed the patience of Job to reach the end of the series. When I began preaching expositionally at UCCD, not everybody liked it. I remember one woman from a charismatic background was bored with the sermons. She was not the only one. She had been taught that only weak Christians needed the Bible. Mature Christians heard from God in other ways, more direct routes, voices, visions, signs. And yet, month after month, year after year, after sitting under regular expository ministry, one day she enthusiastically exclaimed that for her, this was a whole new religion. 
imperceptibly at first, people's expectations began to change about what is exposition. Jokes became less prominent in the pulpit. Gone was the teaching team variety show. Now, whoever was in the pulpit was handling the word expositionally. I remember one long-term, long-time member comparing the preaching to a weekly artillery barrage, like a steady pounding of the word. It was softening up the opposition, enabling more fruitful avenues for ministry in other ways. So I think whether you're pastoring a church or whether you're doing student ministry or missions among non-Christians outside, proclamation must be the priority. In his classic book, Introduction to the Science of Missions, J.H. Bavink, having served, served for a career in Indonesia, he wrote, our preaching is the place where the living Christ encounters a lost and confused mankind. Christ himself comes to a group of people, to a nation or tribe. He comes to them through proclamation. Expositional preaching will not change your congregation overnight, but over years. And some people will leave, but more will come. It is those who are attracted to exposition on whom you're going to build your ministry. So the first key to a long-haul ministry is just preaching. Key number two. Membership. Not just a list of names on a record, but a meaningful, biblically defined community. After arriving in Dubai in 2005, it began to dawn on us that we didn't know who we were. That is, there was no list stating who was and was not a member in good standing of that local church. There were just Several hundred people showing up, some regularly, some not. People were singing, serving coffee, leading small groups who had never committed to the church. Some of these leaders, unbeknownst to the elders, held unorthodox views like universalism, uh, modalism. They hadn't ever been vetted through any membership process. But Paul instructed the Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, without membership, how would we know who that flock was? So, David Lawrence, Max Stiles, and I began implementing meaningful membership. The idea that following Jesus is a community project. And it's a community which is defined and accountable. It's not just folks who happen to show up. And that's how God has always worked. I mean, he worked through a community of people at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he worked through a community of people in the house of Priscilla and Aquila, referenced in Romans 16. Everybody at UCCD was fine with membership, as long as it was basically optional. Nobody objected if membership was for leaders only or 
or the extra committed or sort of as a new management technique. But when we presented membership as an expectation for all believers, we hit turbulence. Of course, some considered it to be legalistic, an extra added option, divisive, and of course, exclusive. The interview process for new members, especially heated and controversial. One person complained in an email, I've never been to a church where you feel like you're required to pass the test as a Christian in order to belong to the family. The whole church experience, he said, is meant to be a loving and caring experience. So for him, what mattered most was that his wife feel affirmed, encouraged. Some of my elders were sympathetic to that view. I'll never forget after one uh, late night meeting. Uh, we reached the end of the meeting and we've, we've got a dozen new member interview forms to go through because people were starting to join the church and one crusty elder turned and asked me, can't we delegate this to a deacon? But what could be more integral to pastoral ministry than carefully seeing sheep in and carefully seeing old members out? This was the moment when the reform of ECCD hung by a thread. In 2008, this elder wrote an email to the other elders complaining about frequent pronouncements that the elders and staff pray for those in the membership directory. This is causing disquiet, he said, among non-members, as though we have two classes of people in the congregation and we only really care enough to pray for those who are members. And this guy thought it was okay for a Roman Catholic to serve coffee in church. He said to say that only UCCD members can do coffee shop duty is insulting to the man who may well leave. And we then have no way of helping him deepen his faith and become fully committed to Christ. By God's grace, the membership initiative survived. And over time, what we began to experience was a self-consciousness to our community in such a way that there was togetherness, there was a commitment that transcended all the natural bonds because our commonality was now in Christ. So the word of Christ began to reverberate throughout this defined and accountable community. The point was not the community. The point was God. Community was the effect, the spillover. It was the gospel that began to create a vital community. But here's the thing that I want to get across to you. That community didn't develop overnight. Over years. Preaching. Membership. And then the third key, discipling. When I arrived, uh, UCCD had six elders, all from different theological backgrounds, including one brethren, one Mennonite, one charismatic, one pragmatic. One was actually the pastor of a Mandarin-speaking church that UCCD had sort of uh, helped start he didn't attend our church. He didn't preach in our church. And yet somehow he was a voting elder of our church. I never understood that. But as the years passed, God slowly began to transform the complexion of our leadership. 
he began to bring new members to us who were recognized as shepherds of the flock and who were increasingly characterized by an ability to teach sound doctrine, a genuine pastoral footprint and commitment to God's people, a high view of the local church and God's purposes, and a belief in the exclusivity of Christ and the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. These men accelerated and enabled the true reform of our church, but it took years. You know, training elders is more like farming than factory assembly. It takes time to watch and test and grow. One author wisely counseled, be patient. And note those men who evidence the desire over time. Watch a man. Encourage him. Observe the desire in fruitful seasons, in dry times, when he's full of joy, and when he's sorrowful. So uh, our friend Nader, who many of us know, he was a young man when he came to UCCD. He was likable, encouraging, uh, naturally uh, related well to the Arabic-speaking members of our church from Egypt. Over the years, as Nader got married, started raising a family, he also started developing a growing interest in missions, and he became our deacon of missions. And as people observed him in that ministry, what was noticeable about him was his, his shepherding concern of these people. Like, he would stay in touch with them. He would pursue them. And uh, he began teaching more in the congregation, and the church eventually recognized, here is an elder who has grown up in our midst. That took seven years. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Parenting doesn't happen overnight. Neither does discipling. Speaking of church leaders, Hebrews 13.7 says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So discipling involves modeling and imitation. Mark Dever said it requires you to be willing to be watched and then folding people into your life so that they actually do watch. That is, they watch the way you treat your wife. They watch your prayer life. Honest confession of sin. Godly relationships. It's the thing that's more caught than taught. Now, movement-driven missions says that all of this is way too time-consuming. It's not reproducible. It's too top-heavy. This approach is slower than what this book is advocating. George Patterson, in his article, advised, take the shortest route possible to start a real church. A group of believers in Christ dedicated to obeying his commands. So, no reference to teachers, no reference to biblically qualified leaders, no reference to the Lord's Supper. He adds, this definition of a church might get a D minus where you studied theology, but the more you add to it, the harder it will be for churches you start to reproduce. Simplicity means reproducibility. And that's the goal. David and Paul Watson say, when working with lost people, we have to avoid falling into the role of explaining Scripture. That's old school. They say, the disciple-maker does not do any of the traditional things required by traditional disciple-making. 
he does not preach or teach. So simplicity means reproducibility, rapidity. And that, I say, is the goal for movement-driven missions, quick-sale techniques, even if that means Christian groups without teachers, and get this, Christian groups led by non-Christians. Did you know that lost people can evangelize? Well, they can if you keep it simple enough. That's contagious disciple-making. So it's okay if the leaders don't know the gospel very well. Uh, the Watsons say, we just want them to share the story they just heard with someone who wasn't in the group. The alternative, according to DMM, is slow growth. Now, don't misunderstand. We here in this conference are not against rapid growth. In fact, we rejoice at the idea of revival. I've been reading George Whitfield's journals to our staff for months now during our staff meetings. We long for extraordinary outpourings of the Holy Spirit. But we also want to be faithful to what's set down in Scripture. So there's so much given uh, attention given to today to what works, but there's a lot less focus on what's faithful to Scripture. So here are three simple keys to long-haul ministry, preaching, membership, discipling. When I began pastoring at UCCD, uh, someone helpfully reminded me that it wasn't my church. In other words, the people there, the leaders there, uh, the state of the church generally, this was the fruit of other people's ministries, not mine. And I could hardly go in and overnight expect the church immediately to adopt my views of, ch of church and ministry approach. And this was really liberating to me, to be content in an environment where people largely didn't share my convictions or ministry philosophy. But after a few years, the picture began to change. So, brothers and sisters, take the long view when it comes to church reform. Not 10 or 20 months, 10 or 20 years. I'll never forget in some of those difficult conversations with the crusty op opponent elders sitting across the table and thinking in the back of my mind, Lord willing, I'm going to be here a lot longer than you are. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also. Be patient. I mean, can't we bear a few storms until the Lord comes? Can't we wait out a few seasons? Matthew Henry said, Consider him that waits for a crop of corn, and will you not wait for a crown of glory? That is what faithful elders are promised. 1 Peter 5, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Friends, there must be something more that's driving us than just preaching a good sermon. 
just personal ministry success or being a successful church planter or a fruitful student evangelist. That's what connects today with yesterday in this conference. The mission connected with the man. Do you remember what Aaron said to us yesterday about his his sermon prep strategy? So after two full days of sermon prep, uh, Aaron finishes up Friday night by meditating on the gospel, not meditating, he said, on how good his sermon's going to be. Meditating on how good God is. The alternative to justification by faith is justification by ministry. What it means to rest well, what it means to do ministry for the long haul, is not just feverishly thinking about how good I'm doing in my ministry. So whenever you strive to complete yourself in the eyes of God, in the eyes of other people you respect, or by comparing yourself with others, you're just being perfected by the flesh. That's how ministers flame out. The gospel means abandoning that whole approach to ministry, growing out of that, repenting of it. I love every time I drive out to RAK, seeing these massive red-brown sand dunes. And there's nothing out in the dunes. If you ever get out to the desert and you get to walk around, and, except once in a while, you see an occasional tree sticking up out of the powdery dry sand. Sometimes a fairly sizable tree. I've often wondered, how is it possible that there, in the barrenness of the desert, there could be a tree, somehow impervious to the drought-like conditions? There must be an underground water source. It's like the man who meditates day and night, not on how good his sermon is, but on how good God is. That's the key to long-haul ministry. That's how we persevere in our preaching and our counseling, our pastoral care, our leadership development, is by being satisfied and amazed with God and His goodness. Psalm 1 says the tree yields its fruit in season. We can't reverse engineer revival conditions. The Lord is the one who brings the times and the seasons. We struggle within with our own frailties and weaknesses. You know, the more I grow spiritually, the more keenly I see them. We find delight in the Lord. We persevere in Him. Find our satisfaction in Him. That keeps us alive. It's as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was there on the cross that he bore our suffering. It was there that he thirsted 
on our behalf so that we might be satisfied. He's the water of life, and he's the crown of life. Not just us being satisfied and justified by our ministries. And it's by being satisfied in the Lord that will get us through every adversity that we can face, every setback, every reversal, every disappointment. William Carey translated the Bible into countless Indian languages, and work was ongoing for still more. When he got news one day that his whole printing plant burned to the ground, precious manuscripts, the work of years and decades went up in smoke. And Kerry wrote to Andrew Fuller, who'd been praying for him from England, and he said, the ground must be labored over again. And I sometimes think, imagine that it's late Saturday night, and I'm preaching the next morning. I just finished my sermon, and I hit save. But my computer crashes. All of the work is gone. Dropbox didn't save it. No, all of my sermons are gone. Everything's lost. What was it that comforted Carrie in that moment? It was the absolute sovereignty of God. He said countless hours had not gone up in the smoke apart from the all-knowing plan of God. So when it happened, Kerry actually dwelt on two ideas. And I quote, one, God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. Two, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. That is, we ought to yield to what he does. We ought to submit to what he does. As if to say, the Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Movement-driven missions downplays the unflashy, the ordinary, the slow. Church planting movements are touted as the most effective means in the world to bring lost millions to Christ. Emphasizing speed, explosive numbers, immediately measurable success. But our friend Harshit Singh in India said, if we were able to compile all the reports of conversions reported by various agencies in India, we would find that India has been reached and converted many times over already. One day, my friends, there will be an assessment of all of our ministries. 1 Corinthians 3.13, the Apostle Paul said, the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So what was William Carey's secret in a 40-year ministry in India? It was this. He said, I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. And it's not because he was so strong. It's because God was so sovereign. So stay in one place. Keep sowing the seed. Be faithful in the little things. And work for the long haul. We were given this book on the first day. 
uh, I read this in 2021 during a year of, uh, of great struggle and trial in my heart and found the example of John Payton, missionary to the South Sea Islands, enormously encouraging. Payton says at the very end of that volume, he gives his closing counsel to the reader, and he says this. Plant down your forces in the heart of one tribe or race where the same language is spoken. Work solidly from that center, building up with patient teaching and lifelong care a church that will endure. Rest not until every people and language and nation has such a Christ center throbbing in its midst with the pulses of the new life at full play. It sounds remarkably different from movement-driven missions. Peyton, rush not from land to land, from people to people, in a breathless and fruitless mission. The consecrated common sense that builds for eternity will receive the fullest approval of God in time. And may that be true of us. May it be true of all of the ministries represented in this room. 